X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's April 2nd, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. At X-Ray, we're here for you now, and we hope always. Today on your local daily news podcast, today's headlines, Dr. Holly Hinson will answer some listener questions about COVID-19 and our interview with Oregon Senator Ron Wyden on the stimulus package negotiations and the efforts at national vote by mail. I think that this program illustrates that the way you make change in America is grassroots up. First up is the quick six. Some of you think it's the very quick six. Others wonder if I could go even faster. The answer is it could. And now it is time for today's quick six local rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith. It is Thursday, April 2nd. Local grocery store workers demanding safer working conditions and better pay. The Mercury and the Oregonian reporting. Whole Foods workers in Portland and across the country participated in a sick-out strike on Tuesday following a Monday strike at Amazon. Whole Foods recently put tighter capacity limits on stores, gave workers $2 an hour raises through April. Striking workers also want some paid leave for employees quarantining during the pandemic. They want COVID-19 testing for workers and hazard pay. Also, Fred Meyer announced Tuesday it will be offering a $2 pay increase. The raise will be effective March 29th. April 18th. Workers at Zupans right here in Portland started an online petition last week calling for stricter social distancing rules. They're requesting a capacity cap of 35 customers at a time and a $2 per hour increase for hazard pay. The capacity cap is already in place at New Seasons Markets, and workers at New Seasons and Market of Choice have also received temporary pay increases. Oregon state and local health officials reported 47 new known cases of the novel coronavirus on Wednesday, bringing the state total to 736. The state now has 19 known deaths from the virus. Washington has been having some technical difficulties lately, which has kept the state from updating its official statewide totals. A release from the Washington Department of Health says the number of negative tests has overwhelmed its data tracking tool. So Washington's official caseload as of March 28th stands just under 5,000 diagnosed cases and 195 related deaths. Keep in mind, of course, actual counts are higher. Our country has been significantly behind on testing. An update on the rent strike we've been hearing about. Renter activists with Portland Tenants United are calling on protesters to refuse to pay rent in April. Rent is typically due right about now. PTU wants to protest the government's decision to delay rental payments instead of erasing some entirely through temporary amnesty. A reminder that refusing to pay rent without sending documentation required under the eviction moratorium rules could result in fines and evictions after the COVID-19 crisis ends. On Wednesday, Governor Kate Brown strengthened her March 22nd order banning residential evictions for non-payment. Governor Brown also banned commercial evictions on Wednesday and strengthened some of the protections for residents. Under the updated emergency order, commercial tenants who offer proof that they can't pay rent due to the pandemic cannot be kicked out or have their lease terminated. There is a requirement that they make partial payments if they can. The new order also bans initiating eviction proceedings for the next 90 days to soften the concern of a wave of quick evictions upon the lifting of the emergency. Wednesday evening, Portland City Council put out a letter to state and federal officials calling for rent and mortgage waivers. No state has done that yet during the pandemic. City of Vancouver on Wednesday announced the designation of a temporary safe parking zone to allow people living in their cars to comply with social distancing measures. That zone is located in the southwest portion of the Vancouver Mall parking lot. 
restroom there, hand washing stations, garbage service. They've got space for 40 vehicles available for free on a first come, first serve basis. The Oregon Department of Corrections on Wednesday announced a worker at the state penitentiary has tested positive for COVID-19. The department is not releasing the worker's identifying information. A worker at the Hillsborough Amazon warehouse has tested positive, and all other workers at the warehouse have been notified. Amazon workers diagnosed with coronavirus or those asked to quarantine will receive up to two weeks of pay. Goodwill Industries of the Columbia Willamette will be laying off roughly 2,600 workers due to the pandemic. Nearly 200 TriMet operators called in sick last week, sounding the alarm about insufficient efforts to protect them. And for riders, here are tips. If you do need to ride the bus, maintain social distance from the driver. Don't sit or stand near them and say your thank you from a distance. Wyden Kennedy came up with their COVID-19 safety slogan. Asked by the governor last week to help come up with a campaign. Well, we now see some of the results. The director of Oregon's public health agency, Patrick Allen, pointed out that recent computer modeling suggests hospitals in Oregon might be able to handle the increase in patients over the next month, but only if 9 out of 10 Oregonians stay at home. Among the ads Wyden Kennedy pro bono work came up with is the following. The word hero is used far too often. Comic book heroes, celebrity heroes, sports heroes. And right now, none of them can do anything for us. It's in times like these we realize who the real heroes are. They are the ones that keep the world turning, who every day come face to face with the same enemy everyone is being told to avoid. They're out there for you. Stay home for them. The central message of the ads in visual and bold black writing against a yellow backdrop, don't accidentally kill someone. No word on if they considered any of the options offered by the local last Friday or such choices as Oregon, things look different here. See them on Pinterest and wash your hands. Is Pinterest still a thing? Oregon, we're preparing to live in a country that is the global epicenter of the pandemic after the president said the coronavirus was a hoax for the critical early weeks and recently told us to wear some Easter bonnets. Thanks, Wyden Kennedy, for your clarity and creativity. And does Oregon have the oldest coronavirus survivor? An Oregonian who celebrated his 104th birthday on Wednesday might be the oldest person in the world to survive COVID-19. William Lapsius, among the first Oregonians known to have the disease, announced he has been declared free of the virus. When asked how he managed to survive his bout, he said, I don't know. It just went away. Sit outside and you can get rid of anything. No word if Wyden Kennedy considered that for a slogan. Note. William Lapsius is neither an epidemiologist nor a virologist. Sitting is not a known cure for COVID-19. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith, and you're listening to The Local. Up next, Dr. Holly Hinson answers listener questions about the novel coronavirus. Going forward, you can send questions and feedback to thelocal at xray.fm. After The Good Doctor, our interview with Senator Ron Wyden. We talk about his negotiations in the federal stimulus package, expanding unemployment insurance, and his push to take vote-by-mail national. On the line right now is Dr. Holly Henson, a DJ and music director at her college radio station, now an ICU doc, an intensivist at Oregon Health Sciences University. Thank you for joining us, doctor. Thanks, Jefferson. Thanks for having me. We got a couple questions coming in already. And there may be more, and I certainly have some. Before that, how are you doing? How are you putting up with this? How is this impacting your life, either professionally or personally? 
Thanks. Thanks for asking. Well, first, I just want to say before I get answering some questions that I'm coming on as a private citizen and not in an official capacity for my employer, OHSU. So the everything I expressed today are my own thoughts and opinions and uh, not any kind of official stance. So uh, just to say that sure. on the uh, on the top. But um, but thanks for asking. It's definitely an an anxiety sort of ridden time period for anyone in healthcare, whether you're on the front lines or not, um, for a lot of reasons, right? Uh, for ourselves, for our families, and not wanting to uh, sort of be part of the problem, but at the same time, really wanting to uh, to help folks and to to apply our knowledge and skills as best we can. So yeah, I think all of us are nervous, myself included. But at the same time, I mean, it's what we train for. It's the reason that we got into this professional business. And so it's part and parcel um, part of the job. So I don't know. It's it's a lot of mixed emotions because you want to help, but you're also, you know, nervous and, and scared in some in some regards. Are you still going up to the hill? How are you socially distancing? And otherwise, how are you protecting yourself? Yeah, definitely. So, um, so. I'm a, my employment's a little bit different than your conventional neurologist who uh, has a clinic and sees outpatients. So I don't do that at all. I just work exclusively in the hospital. So we have more of a shift model, like what you might expect for an emergency room doctor or something of this nature. So I'm only going up to the hill when I have my clinical shifts, and I'm not. I'm staying home when I uh, when I don't and staying connected with uh, my other duties you know electronically like like many of us are doing so trying to trying to avoid you know sort of any travel that I can. OHSU does have cases there now yes there are and and they are doing research studies there I mean some of this stuff is going through OHSU has to grapple with this to some degree. Yeah, that's that's true. Really, all every major hospital in the yeah. Portland metro area has and is treating cases right now. But that being said, really, we're at this point still bracing uh, for what we perceive to probably be an incoming wave of folks uh, that are symptomatic that require hospitalization, whether that be in the usual hospital or in the intensive care unit where, where I work. So that really hasn't happened yet, and the models keep pushing it back. So in a lot of ways, we've done some good things here in Oregon by implementing the social distancing when we did. Uh, of course, you can make the argument we should have done more earlier, but we did something when we did, and, and that I think has had some impacts and at least slowed down what we anticipated. A, at first, we thought, you know, really late March, early April, and now it's looking more like mid to late April is when we're uh, expecting to see kind of a big wave of, uh, of cases. But again, these are just projections and models and we don't really know. So, um, so yeah, so we're just sort of waiting like everyone else. Something that I use for information aside from the internal emails that I can get um, being uh, a hospital employee is, uh, is the Oregon Health Authority. I don't know if, uh, if other folks have looked at that too, but it's uh, it's a government website. It's just govstatus.egov.com, and then it's Oregon OHA. And they have a COVID-19 page that shows really in pretty great detail the number of cases in the state of Oregon. They break it down by county. They look at uh, hospital admissions versus uh, outpatient and ICU beds and even have tracking on uh, personal protective equipment or PPE that you all have heard so much about. So I find that actually a pretty great source of information, but it is kind of nerve-wracking to see those cases ticking upwards. We got some questions in. Uh, 
A, can you ask the doc if I can wash a bandana as a reusable mask? I also iron it with hot, hot iron. Talk to you about your views, and you're speaking personally, but with the scientific and medical care background, uh, your views on masks, what works, and how to make sure the mask is, in fact, working. Right. So, unfortunately, cloth masks are not as protective as, the, for example, the N95 masks that are um, provided to healthcare workers, or at least, you know, that's, that's what, we're, what we're hoping. Um, the, the cloth masks, I've seen quoted block something on the order of 40 to 60% of, uh, of, of particulate, but, um, but that's obviously not 100%. So, in, you know, in terms, I wouldn't recommend like cloth masks like bandanas for healthcare workers who are definitely going to be encountering folks that have uh, coronavirus or, or the illness caused COVID-19. But, um, but just going about your daily uh, activities when you have to leave the house, you have to get food, you have to do um, essential errands, that type of thing, and you want some extra protection, there's nothing wrong with using uh, a cloth mask. Um, it's certainly better than no protection at all. And um, as far as we can tell, just home laundry of, uh, of fabric will kill virus. And so uh, you can iron it too if you like. That's an extra step. Uh, and get out the wrinkles. But, uh, yeah, exactly. But, uh, but probably just conventional home laundry is plenty and will uh, kill anything that's adhered to the, to the fabric. Another question on masks. A question about tennis. Now, we know that basketball is a sport that we're not playing right now because you can't socially distance. But what about tennis? Would that be breaking the rules? Is it considered acceptable exercise or frivolous entertainment? What say you, doctor? <laughs> oh, man, that's a tough one. It says, thanks uh, for helping me with my first world problems. So that's the text. <laughs> and I think that texture was Wesley Snipes. Sports medicine or infectious disease, I, I just want to say that. So we know that the virus is dead spread by droplets, and those droplets can exist on surfaces uh, outside the body for some period of time. Uh, now, uh, you know, I don't know that they've done the uh, laboratory work on uh, the material that uh, tennis balls are composed of to see how long the virus can survive on the tennis ball. I don't know. I mean, that's tough. Like, I think you could make an argument about, uh, you know, not touching your face, washing your hands, and still, um, you know, perhaps safely playing a game. I don't know. That's a great question. Uh, it, that's the borderline I, one. It's, it's funny they asked about that because the very question occurred to me last week. It's like, wait a minute. That's a, you don't get close to anybody there unless you're playing doubles and just play singles tennis. And then, but, oh, then you got to touch the ball. And, may, you know, that's the, that's the yeah. weakness, it seems like. That's the tough part. Um, but I will say that getting exercise and doing the things that you can do to maintain your physical and mental health during this period of time, so incredibly key. And there's no way that you can eliminate your risk entirely. So um, everything that you can do to reduce that risk is good. Um, but at the same time, you know, some common sense and taking care of yourself. And um, yeah, exactly. My wife's take was also just be careful about doing anything where you could get injured and need to go to an ICU because not only oh, does that goodness. put you at risk, but also it takes up an ICU bed that somebody else might need. So we should all just be a little bit cool. That's at least her take. I think that is the best advice ever. Like really, like you, this is not the time that you really super want to go to the hospital. Um, I, no one ever really 
says to themselves, you know, I, I'd like to be, you know, a trauma and go get admitted to the hospital now more than ever. Um, if you can avoid it, it's a good thing. If you end up on the respirator in a coma, says our text question, if you survive it, is there any permanent paralysis later? That's an awesome question and really good one. I think the question, uh, the person who posed the question is meaning ventilator. Um, just, just as a quickie, I think this is really confusing. And so just to, just to kind of clarify, respirators are the things that people breathe through, but they're breathing. So they're protective masks that are called respirators that folks might have encountered, um, you know, industrial job sites and that kind of thing, right? Um, a ventilator is actually a machine that will breathe for a person or support that person's breathing. So in the medical uh, sort of system, I think what this person is talking about is a ventilator. And, um, and then, but that raises the question of like, is there neurologic involvement uh, with coronavirus? And of course, as a neurologist, that's how I'm interpreting this question. And, and, um, and we don't know yet. We don't have enough experience with the virus to know. Um, essentially, so far... Um, we don't, folks wouldn't necessarily be uh, directly paralyzed by being on the ventilator, um, but there could be some post-infectious neurologic illness associated with coronavirus. We don't know. We won't know really for the coming years. So I would say um, in, the, in the, the number of worries, I would say worry number one, avoiding the virus entirely. Worry number two, just sort of getting through the lung disease and then the sort of associated other complications. Um, but yeah, we just don't know yet. I think something that's really interesting about uh, coronavirus is something called the r not. Are you familiar with that idea or that concept? I am. I just learned about it like maybe two weeks ago. Oh, cool. Okay. So it's something that I thought was really interesting. And so for folks that are not familiar, the R-naught is essentially how infectious the um, entity, in this case, a virus is. So meaning how many, it's, a, it's an estimation of approximately how many people that you would, you would spread that to. And so coronavirus and then uh, the disease caused by COVID-19 is pretty darn infectious. And so to give you a, um, some yardsticks to think about this, one, the, the conventional flu, like influenza, is about uh, R-naught of one, so meaning that on average you'd spread it to about one other person. Ebola, remember Ebola? Yes. Um, is about 1.5. Um, and coronavirus' novel COVID-19 is, is, is about 2 to maybe 2.5. So it's about double um, the spread of the conventional sort of flu bug, which is pretty darn spreadable. Uh, just another comparison that I think is really interesting, if you want to compare it to measles, which is airborne, um, as opposed to droplet-borne, which is what coronavirus is, that's 12 to 15. So that's pretty crazy. So that's why people go kind of kind of um, really intense about measles. But uh, That's really but helpful. Anyway. You asked me if I yeah. knew or not. I had learned it, but if you'd asked me to say something, I would have not said anything without the benefit of Google. And now I have the benefit <laughs> of Dr. Holly Hinson, which we all appreciate, and now also with the benefit of Google, yes, the R not, which, and, and to give you an example of how little I could actually describe it, I couldn't have spelled it. Uh, the it's not like a r n o t. It's no. r with a little r zero at the end, right? It's like r not yeah. like the like we were in the aughts. Correct. Yeah, it's like r zero. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Holly Henson, thank you so much. This was valuable. We had had a chance to answer some of the questions that came in. Hugely appreciate your time, and I hopefully either you'll be willing to come on again or point us in the direction of people you think would be terrifically helpful to this community. And thanks for everything you do for this community. 
Now we continue to our interview with Oregon Senior Senator Ron Wyden. By the way, if you're the senior senator, it just means you're the first of two. Everybody gets two. And whichever one's been there longer is the senior senator. The other one is the junior senator. It doesn't mean that one necessarily has more power, although Ron Wyden is the ranking member on the finance committee. Ranking member just means you're the highest ranking member of the party that's not in control. It also, though, means if Democrats do win the U.S. Senate in the 2020 elections, Ron Wyden will be one of the most powerful members of the U.S. Senate. Welcome, Senator. Well, Jefferson, thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing your show. I think it really gets information out that's important. I'm sitting at my desk in the Dirksen Senate office building and trying to make sure in particular that what was intended by the Congress last week actually happens. A big chunk of the package went to the Senate Finance Committee, where I'm the ranking Democrat. So I negotiated the unemployment uh, provisions with, uh, with the Trump administration, existing unemployment, plus the $600 more per week each week for the next uh, four months, including for the first time gig workers and freelancers and independent contractors and folks that never really got served by this unemployment insurance program that isn't all that different today than when it began in the 1930s in Wisconsin. Then, um, to make sure that we recognize that our small employers, because what we want to do is retain workers in every way possible, are so important, I wrote the uh, retention tax credit that gives employers a tax credit for retaining workers, then the workers in a position to secure wages and health care and other benefits, and the employer is able to run their business. So as we come out of this horrible, horrible health care and economic hit that we have seen, we're in a position to recover more quickly. Put us in the scene Try to help us understand what these negotiations are looking like. This was happening really fast. I mean, who knows? Maybe there were early discussions that we weren't aware of. But for a while, the president is calling this a hoax, uh, is delaying and saying there's nothing to worry about, saying that everybody get ready to put on your Easter bonnets. Uh, and then all of a sudden, things start getting really serious. Talk to us and tell us about how those negotiations were working and how you insert yourself in that, right? Is it Zoom calls? Is it business as usual? Are you sending emails? Are you having phone calls with folks and saying, hey, here's the key stuff uh, that I think needs to be in there? Are you, are, you, are you talking, Jefferson, about the negotiations to get the bill together or the negotiations after it passed? Let's start with the negotiations to get the bill together. Well, what, what happened was the Senate Finance Committee, we have jurisdiction over unemployment insurance and taxes and health care and the like, you know, it was pretty clear that the Trump administration's principal interest started out being essentially the various powerful special interests and the big, you know, big companies. And I made the point again and again on behalf of Senate Democrats that we had a bottom line here. Our bottom line is workers first. Because the reality is the economy is really driven by the middle class and by consumers and by workers. And when workers don't have the money to make rent and buy groceries and pay for out-of-pocket, you know, medical, you know, the economic dominoes start, you know, falling. So I was in the middle of these negotiations, particularly with Secretary Mnuchin representing the administration. He said, well, the fourth month that you're insisting on Senator Wyden, the Senate Democrats are talking about, we can't afford it. And what happened was my staff and I, we took out our smartphones and the, pers- and the uh, calculator on, uh, on the smartphone, and we were able to 
showed that we could afford it. It was within the general range of the $250 billion um, package that had been uh, basically part of the effort to put together unemployment compensation. So uh, that uh, smartphone, I guess, is going to be shipped to some library or something somewhere, and people are going to be talking about it. But that's the kind of negotiation you know, it was, is that it went by very fast, uh, the Trump administration like how really fast? didn't how have fast any is plans fast? for a major unemployment compensation program. And I just said on behalf of Senate Democrats, this is our bottom line. Our workers are hurting. How fast is fast? Like a matter of 24 hours, a matter of hours? And are you communicating by telephone? How are the negotiations going down practically? Talk to us about time and place. Again, for purposes of pulling together the bill, the provisions on unemployment you know, coverage, uh, there were very intense negotiations for about three days, and, and they went back and forth for a couple of days afterwards. Now I'm sitting at my desk. The bill was uh, signed on uh, Friday night, I believe, uh, maybe Friday afternoon. And I was at my desk and spent a big chunk of the weekend working with uh, Trump officials, Trump authorities, to try to make it possible for Oregon companies to get guidance on how they could make more of the PPE, what is essentially the personal protective equipment that people need, the masks and the gowns and uh, uh, that, that sort of thing. So it's just been hands-on every step of the way. And how did you end up identifying those priorities? Obviously, some of it is informed by stuff that you and other Democrats have been talking about for decades, right, trying to put workers first. I get that part. But are there scenarios that you've thought of that members of your staff have been putting together if we face a pandemic? Are there think tanks that are advising you? Is it just a wild hair that you get as you're going to sleep? How did you start narrowing in on the specifics of those priorities? Well, it was very clear that, and you saw the unemployment numbers. The first unemployment numbers were well over 3 million people were laid off. I mean, this makes the recession of 2008 look, you know, modest. So, it was clear that you know workers were just hemorrhaging the money, the wages that they needed, basically to take care of, of necessities. So I think anybody who would just kind of keep their eyes open and and after 970 town hall meetings at at home, you know when we made a few calls, people said, hey, this is not a close call. You got to focus on two things. You got to focus on replacing workers' wages, and that's what we did. Um, the $600 uh, per week, each week for four months, was a separate negotiation, as I said, with, uh, with the calculator and the debate with Secretary uh, Mnuchin. But it was clear that we really could not begin to stop the hemorrhaging without focusing on uh, the workers and replacing the lost wages and the employers having some incentives, new incentives, to be able to retain uh, workers, particularly our small business in Oregon, as we know, you, you can cover the big number of big businesses on both hand, on the fingers of both hands. You have said this is one of the most significant things you've done in your career. Uh, what was the worst part of the bill? And I by that I mean getting the unemployment insurance in there, increasing by six hundred dollars a month, expanding eligibility to include gig workers. You have uh, said it's one of the more important things you've done. What were some of the pills that had to be swallowed? What were some of the things that you thought were not good elements of the bill that were part of the negotiations on uh, Mnuchin's side or on the president's side? Well, as you as 
um, your listeners know, you know, Trump administration certainly packed in a fair number of corporate tax goodies, uh, this kind of fund that they're going to have control over. We put some guardrails uh, on it. In fact, we've put out a letter today expressing uh, our concern about that and how vigorous we're going to be conducting oversight uh, over it. So, you know, this was not a piece of legislation where everybody got exactly, you know, what, what they wanted. But uh, if we hadn't stepped in and focused particularly on unemployment compensation and really trying to break, you know, new ground, my staff had been working on this for well over a year, and we were working on it back when unemployment was almost at record lows in, in terms of uh, the economic uh, picture. And what we really saw was that the unemployment system came from the 1930s. Nobody had ever heard of a gig worker back in the 1930s. And so what we saw is this was an opportunity where we actually had to act help people who are really hurting. And I think with um, the coverage for the people who hadn't been covered in the past, we've laid the foundation once we get through this crisis for more comprehensive reform of the unemployment system. You mentioned the negotiations since the bill has passed. What's happening there? What do we need to be aware of? Well, for, for, for example, over the weekend, I talked to uh, officials in the Trump administration, including the vice, vice president, and I said, we've got companies, we've got companies like Nike that want to make this personal protective you know, equipment. They're in a position to do it. I mean, they're big companies. They know how to make apparel. They know how to make this. And we've just been challenged in terms of getting the specs from the federal government. And what we're talking about is specs that the federal agencies have. We're starting to do a little better, work very closely with the, the governor and, and her folks on it. It seems to me that at this time, and maybe this relates to the negotiations that are happening after the bill, maybe it goes beyond that, that I've started my own brain to sift through things that feel like they're being done because of this crisis and to get us through this crisis, and then watching for other things that might happen during the crisis with the crisis as cover. So, for instance, if there's a set of tax breaks that really helps companies stay alive, well, that's because it helps us get through the crisis. If it's just sort of a chance to make a giveaway, that's the kind of thing, well, maybe this crisis is being used as a cover. Some of there's some critiques currently on the uh, attorney general that there's some concerns about what he might do with constitutional rights using the crisis as cover. He would argue, no, no, I'm doing it because of the crisis. What are things that you think we most need to be watchful for? That we well, might. I, I, I think certainly protecting the Constitution in the middle of a pandemic is absolutely key. And you look at some of these things uh, Mr. Barr is, you know, is talking about, and I think they raise very substantial kinds of questions. I mean, we still have got to go back to the FISA um, rewrite of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. I and others, for example, think that there are big, big gaps under the uh, provision that is on offer now in the Senate, the government basically could look at your you know, browsing you know, history. People used to think that it was bad when the, uh, the government could get access to your uh, library records. Wait till you hear what people have to say when they see that the government can get access to your browsing history. So um, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is a bill that we have to return to when we get through this um, recovery. And certainly what Mr. Barr has been um, talking about in terms of um, 
of privacy and civil liberties issues raised some very troubling questions. Something that's happening now, a, dis- a debate that's happening now in the Northwest is about facial recognition. Is that already making it to Washington at what national oh, facial yeah. recognition standards should There's a be? lot of concern in D.C. about facial recognition, discrimination against minorities. I'm very troubled by some of what's going on, and I'm glad that Oregon's stepping up. Let's talk about elections. One of the big moves that you made, you were the first U.S. senator to be elected as a full vote-by-mail candidate. And now you have made a proposal. Hey, listen, folks, getting in line at polling places this coming November, heck, during these primaries, is going to be a pretty tricky thing to do. We need to have the resources to be able to do national vote-by-mail it sounded like you were having some traction recently. We heard the president say, well, if it made it, we made it too easy for people to vote, then Republicans would never win an election. What's the state of play with negotiations around national vote by mail right now? Well, Jefferson, I, I think every single Tuesday, our side in the effort to expand the franchise and promote vote by mail makes headway because we see so many local officials, governors and mayors and others, actually postponing elections. And I understand that in Wisconsin, the governor is talking about calling out the you know, National Guard to be you know, poll workers. Well, most poll workers in America are over the age of 60. So we're talking about a public health issue as well as a kind of democracy you know, issue. And um, what I and Senator Klobuchar are saying is that this is really about upscaling the status quo. We've already seen, I started introducing vote by mail legislation in 2002, Jefferson. So I've been at it a long time. And during that period of time, we've seen significant expansion of absentee voting. We've seen, for example, not just absentee voting, but Um, No longer do you have to have an excuse in many places to get a ballot. So we're making a lot of headway. What I'm saying to Republicans now is, hey, folks, you may be looking at a choice here in this fall. I hope that it won't be this kind of worst-case scenario, but we may be as a country looking at whether you're going to get to vote by mail or you're not going to get to vote at all. I tell them that's not even a close call. On the vote-by-mail issue in the CARES Act, in the stimulus bill, what uh, did you want in there and what ended up getting in there? Because I know for a while there was a big push and then there was some resistance. Tell us about how it ended up and what you wanted, what it lacked. We we asked for $2 billion to help with the transition, basically paying for postage and machines and all the things that make up the transition in order to help uh, communities get this together and get it uh, in place. We ended up with about $400 million, and we're just going to stay at it. We've got more than six months um, to go, and I think you're already starting to see um, Republican officials at the uh, state and local level, Larry Hogan, the mayor of Maryland, now very interested in vote by mail. Georgia, of all places, is talking about mailing uh, ballots uh, out. So I think that more and more elected uh, officials are seeing that this is a good idea. We've made money available, and whether it's for postage, machines to count the ballots, 
we're trying to ease the transition. Senator, I know that you've got to run. Thank you so much for spending this time. Any closing word that you need to offer, anything I should have asked and didn't, hopefully your staff is doing okay. Any final thought? Jefferson, thanks for this program. I think that this program illustrates that the way you make change in America is grassroots up. It's not trickle down where it starts in Washington and trickles down to people. It's grassroots up. And this is what you're doing. And uh, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to doing it with you again. Senator Wyden, thanks so much for your time. Good care. Thanks. Thanks to Dr. Henson and Senator Wyden for sharing time. And thanks for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Please do share with others. Five-star reviews apparently really help. We'd love your feedback. Meanwhile, stay home and stay connected. Thanks, everybody. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow.